In the late 1820s, another storm was starting to brew in France, and the tension was everywhere. And Lafayette, who had just returned to France after a tour in America where he was treated like a god, was back to cold shoulders and suspicious glances. Lafayette always seemed to have the right ideas to make him a hero, but along the way, he had help expressing those in a reasonable way. He had worked alongside Benjamin Franklin and John Adams during the American Revolution. Even his wife, who caused a public relations nightmare for the Austrians by going to live with her husband in his prison cell at Olmutz. Of course, part of that decision was out of love, but Adrian had been smart enough to know that the Austrians did not want the world's ire and disdain earned by holding a beloved war hero. But now, Lafayette was alone. Educated and aristocratic, he had the right spirit, it seemed, but he was also intrepid and occasionally hot-headed. And that hot-headedness had earned him the ire of the current king, King Charles X. Charles had been the younger brother of Louis XVIII, and he, like his brother before him, was always suspicious of an aristocrat who fought to topple governments. Not an unreasonable fear, I suppose, but the problem for Charles was the same of that of Louis and Napoleon, even the Austrians. Most people loved Lafayette tremendously, and the backlash would have been swift, should he have done anything to hurt Lafayette. So you could imagine that in 1832, the expression on the face of King Louis-Philippe as he learned that revolutionaries were building barricades with anything that was not nailed to the ground, ready to fight. That was probably enough of a blow, until he learned even more news. Lafayette, now in his early 70s, was also in the street, behind the barricades, ready for yet another revolution. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. The Marquis de Lafayette, Episode 6. Prior to the events of Les Trois Glorieux, or the Three Glorious Days, pressure was building in the streets of Paris. France's government never seemed to be able to stop the centrifugal force from the freefall spinning following the French Revolution. In the spring of 1827, Lafayette was elected to France's Chamber of Deputies, the country's parliamentary body, during the Bourbon Restoration. The National Assembly had been dissolved. Charles was at least smart enough to not arrest Lafayette, but that did not mean he didn't look for any excuse to muzzle the man's sentiments. This did not go over well. A newspaper man was quickly arrested for printing an inflammatory letter from Lafayette in his paper. For this, Lafayette immediately went to the magistrate and demanded to take the publisher's place. The situation was eventually resolved, but to prevent further uprising, King Charles X announced that he wanted to dissolve the chamber and re-elect others. It was a clear move to have a more supportive government body. 
If he had hoped to weed out Lafayette, though, it didn't work. The people of Bree voted him back into the chamber once more. It was also during this time that Lafayette learned that former President James Monroe was broke, bankrupt. Monroe, who had convinced the government to bankroll Lafayette's United States tour, was now having to repay money used during his time as an envoy for the United States. Without Monroe, Adrian would have likely been guillotined, and Lafayette knew this. He immediately and swiftly offered Monroe the sale of half of the property he owned in Florida, Tallahassee specifically. It was property that had been gifted to him by Monroe, and when Monroe became embarrassed by the gesture, Lafayette reminded him that at one point he had lost all but his family and that Monroe was the main reason they had survived the terror. You remember in similar embarrassment I formerly accepted your intervention. It gives me right to reciprocity. In 1830, Charles opened the session of the Chamber of Deputies by making threats. He was already suppressing the press, and to print anything against the king would surely end poorly for the publisher. Police were even dispatched to control a crowd as they exited a performance of William Tell. William Tell, you see, is the story of a coup of the Austrian Empire. Charles was quick to pull rank, noting that he would remove those that he felt a danger to the country. In addition to his political views, many were outraged by Charles's nomination of Ultra de Polignac as the minister. This would truly light the fire. It's almost as if Charles didn't realize that the initial revolution had emboldened the Chamber of Deputies and all who came after them. They were quick to point out a section of France's constitutional charter. The charter had your typical tenets of freedom, but it also highlighted that a king and his subjects must be met equally on decisions. The wish of the general public must be met with the support of the crown. This was not the case. And for the second time, seeing that he would be gaining no ground, Charles X dissolved the chamber once more. If he couldn't get what he wanted, he would start from scratch. Imagine the anger Charles must have felt when the new election re-elected most of his enemies and kept the landscape of politics in Paris exactly the same. It must have hurt even worse to see that Lafayette had won by the largest landslide in his political career. And so, Charles dissolved the chamber for a third time. The Barricades Situated off Rue de Rivoli near Notre Dame, the groups consisting of workers and students held their ground in front of the Hotel de Ville, uh, basically Paris's city hall. Many of Charles's allies had hoped that simply getting rid of Polignac would ease the strain and tension a bit. And in another miscalculated move, Charles shut down the printing presses, threatening legal action to anyone who continued to print pamphlets or the like. None of the printers complied and continued to print information to send out to the masses, spreading the word of the riots. King Charles quickly fled the city. The royalist army began destroying drinking water and supplies, leaving trails of body in their wake. And the second that Lafayette found out, the 73-year-old was on his horse, riding down to the barricades. 
far too old to fight, but still young enough to be present and powerful. Upon seeing him approach, the revolutionaries began cheering. The students may have been thrilled, but the royalist began yelling for his arrest. Outside the Hotel de Ville, he dismounted, injured leg causing him to limp very slowly toward the building. A meeting would be organized the next day amongst the deputies, but Lafayette's appearance caused chaos in the crowd. The Royalist Army was prepared to take any of them down, but Lafayette urged his deputies to order the army to stop firing on its citizens. There was work to be done, and spilling more blood outside was not going to help at all. They would need a provisional government. When no response came from any of his fellow deputies, Lafayette announced that he would set up headquarters there in the morning. All attempts to open communication with Charles or Polignac were met with silence. Out at the barricades, fraternization began to happen as the royalists and revolutionaries spoke with each other. Far too late, Charles dismissed Polignac and his July ordinances, which had suspended the free press and had allowed him to dissolve the chamber at his leisure, were also suspended. But seeing no end in sight, on August 2nd, Charles, along with his son, abdicated the throne. Despite a unified front at the barricades, there were those who hoped to put Lafayette on a throne, even offering him something sort of like a dictatorship. And others supported Louis-Philippe, the fifth cousin of Charles. Lafayette wanted nothing to do with a seat of absolute power, and though Louis-Philippe accepted the position, he never exuded much joy. He was detested by the revolutionaries. It seemed as if no one wanted to be king of France, and who could blame them? The job seemed to always end badly, and as I once mentioned on my TikTok channel, had safety hazards right up there with being one of Henry VIII's wives. Lafayette had advocated for Louis-Philippe, but it was not the republic of his boyhood dreams. This was a constitutional monarchy, better than the alternative, but not what he had prayed and worked for. The two did find common ground after many a conversation over the state on republicanism in monarchy. And it was Lafayette who would hold up the tricolor flag of the red, blue, and white, the flag of the revolutionaries, hanging it in front of a cheering crowd as he stood next to Louis-Philippe. An agreement was reached. Louis-Philippe was named king, and alongside him, stood Lafayette. The show of support was little more than a game. The July monarchy, as it would be called, was now ready to make some changes. But Lafayette already knew that governing was the real warfare. There was still more work to do. The Charter of 1814 was revised by France's Chamber of Deputies as they worked to restore free speech and reestablish the National Guard. The deputies also ardently worked to downplay religion and its role in the government. And now the House of Bourbon was gone, absorbed into the House of L'Orléans. The title of King of France became the more encompassing King of the French. And still Lafayette received most of the attention for his negotiation skills that helped to put Louis-Philippe 
on the throne. And as Louis-Philippe tried to share the spotlight with the Marquis, he often found himself hidden in the shadows. But everyone at court was wary of Lafayette. Talleyrand, the former right-hand man of Napoleon, who continued to remain close to whoever was in power, be it through being a sycophant or a good negotiator, depending on who you ask, once received a letter from an Austrian minister that reads, When the masses rise up provoked by troublemakers, by Lafayette, who can stop them? In retrospect, the Austrian minister wasn't wrong. Lafayette was running the show on a lot of matters, from military to freedom. It left a lot of open room for other European countries to laugh at Louis-Philippe, who appeared to be nothing more than a puppet rather than a king. The conservatives feared Lafayette's power and stripped his title over the National Guard. Lafayette just brushed that off. Nominal titles do not benefit a free people or me, he said. Many of his officers resigned in anger at his treatment. Realizing the sway in public opinion, he was offered an honorary title, but Lafayette, tired and aging, refused, announcing that this was now his time to retire. There was a momentary sigh of relief until Lafayette clarified. He would retire from his place with the National Guard, but he sure as hell would be keeping his seat in the Chamber of Deputies. As the rest of Europe began to angrily claim that Lafayette was creating potential uprisings with his rhetoric of freedom, and as he continued to criticize Louis-Philippe, the king finally broke ties with the Marquis, even accusing him of lying about the conversations they had as they worked to quell the July Revolution. Lafayette returned home to Lagrange, where, despite taking a quiet repose, he was re-elected to his post by his neighbors. But things took a turn in France when a cholera pandemic began frantically spreading through Europe. Lafayette left Lagrange, leaving George in charge of the estate. The epidemic spread like wildfire and claimed the lives of thousands of Parisians, including the prime minister. Despite protests, Louis-Philippe claimed the responsibilities held by the office of the prime minister himself. And then things start to escalate once more. General Maximilien Lamarck, hero of the Napoleonic era, fell. He was also a fellow chamber deputy. Lafayette was one of several pallbearers at his funeral. Lafayette had always been an idol for the youthful and idealistic boys who began screaming his name when he saw them. He snapped telling them that this was not the time to be celebrating him. This was a funeral. This was mourning. But the anger began to escalate. Jacobin flags rose from the crowds and screams filled the air. Then came the police charging the crowds. Horses ran over women and children, mutilating them. And it was George Washington de Lafayette who managed to grab his father and pull him from harm's way down an alley. For two days, there was fighting, until Louis-Philippe ordered all barricades be blown to bits by cannons. The Lamarck funeral riots, Lafayette feared, were now his legacy. 
It was no secret that both sides blamed Lafayette, especially the king. Sitting at LaGrange, the aging Lafayette hoped to keep fighting somehow, but during that summer, he did manage to find some small joys in growing apples and playing with his grandchildren. He did continue some responsibilities in his chamber duties, but for the most part, he avoided crowds, save for any of his Masonic brothers and a couple of Americans, including a visit with notable American author James Fenimore Cooper. Louis-Philippe returned his attention to controlling the press and forbidding political meetings. Whatever glimmer of hope that Lafayette had seen in this new king was now rusty. On January 3, 1834, Lafayette made a speech at the Chamber of Deputies. A month later, at the funeral of a fallen deputy, Lafayette collapsed. He was attended to by physicians who had him up and walking, but an open carriage ride in a rainstorm confined him to his bed in May. Rumors of his ill health traveled quickly, and though he was sick, he did spend most of his time reading the paper or doing correspondence, even once hilariously laughing to discover that a Swiss newspaper, La Gazette de Suisse, had already posted his obituary. He threw the paper playfully at the doctor and joked, You! Did you know about this? Lafayette then muttered about how people should not trust the papers. His condition deteriorating, Lafayette ordered the doctors just to let him go. His family pleaded with them to try more treatments, but he was tired. At 4 a.m. on the morning of May 20th, Lafayette said nothing. He opened his eyes. Around his neck was the locket that contained a photo of Adrian and the inscription of her last words. Je suis tout à vous. I am eternally yours. Not a sound did he utter, but he pressed the lockets to his lips, closed his eyes, and died. There is such a vast difference in the way the news of Lafayette's death was received in the United States versus France. As news spread to the Americas, the country fell into deep mourning. Their marquee was gone. Flags were lowered to half-staff, and President Andrew Jackson ordered the same military honors for him as he would any other general. Towns across the United States held memorials. In France, the scene was very different. Louis-Philippe gave no spectacle for Lafayette. He ordered a military funeral, and it was private in order to keep a crowd from attending. The deputy of the chamber made a brief statement, and that was all. The press teased Louis-Philippe's jealousy of Lafayette and the banning of crowds at his funeral by lampooning him with a comic, captioned, 
Hide yourself, Parisians. The funeral of an honest man and true friend of liberty is passing by. Per his wishes, Lafayette was buried next to Adrian in Picpou Cemetery. The soil from Bunker Hill on top of his grave. The hero of two worlds buried under soil from both. Lafayette was now gone, but his son worked to collect every speech and every letter to document the full life of his father. If it was any consolation for the poor send-off his father received, George Washington de Lafayette must have watched with some satisfaction of the abdication of King Louis-Philippe. He even followed his father's footsteps into the Chamber of Deputies, but sadly, George Washington de Lafayette would pass in 1849. So many times growing up, I heard my classmates joking about the French army. Those, of course, mostly relating to World War II. And despite those Second World War stories being either completely false or more complicated than most people know or understand, it always annoyed me. Without France, more specifically without the Marquis de Lafayette, there would be no America. He defied his king to help found the United States. And yes, we helped France during the Second World War and toward the end of the Great War as well. But I can only think back to Lafayette's letter to James Monroe as a rebuttal. You remember, in similar embarrassment, I have formerly accepted your intervention. It gives me right to reciprocity. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we talk about all the people in history who were God's favorites, or at least thought they were. Verses for today's show include Lafayette by Harlow Giles Unger, Hero of Two Worlds by Mike Duncan, Britannica.com, The Journalist and the July Revolution by Daniel L. Rader, and of course History.com. Join us in two weeks for a mini-sode on a similar topic, as we always do. And in a month, join us as we study the life of one of the most celebrated men in musical theater, the beloved and late Stephen Sondheim. Thank you to everyone who donates to our Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash melissafairlady. That also happens to be my TikTok handle. So if you're on TikTok, follow me at Melissa Fairlady. We have a lot of fun on there with different stories from history as well as other insanity. Or join the conversation on the God's Favorites Facebook page. The show is written and produced by me, Melissa. Thank you so much for listening and, well, we'll see you next time, friends. <laughs>